Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our video cast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. My name is Austin Bolton. I'm a CA3 resident at University of Kentucky. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about one lung ventilation, hypoxemia during one lung ventilation, and different approaches to managing hypoxemia during one lung ventilation. I've used the Yao and Artuzio and Big Bearish books as my, as my references. There are numerous reasons that one may have to perform single lung ventilation, and numerous techniques for doing so. Those are not the subject of this podcast. If you've spent much time performing the anesthetic for thoracic cases, I'm sure that you are acutely aware of the fact that getting a patient through surgery using one lung ventilation can be extremely smooth and easy, but it can also be exceptionally challenging and stressful. Hypoxemia during surgery is rarely a pleasant complication to deal with as an anesthesiologist. To make things worse, a large portion of patients requiring thoracic surgery have significant lung disease and are going to be more prone to hypoxemia and less tolerant of one lung ventilation than an otherwise healthy patient. So what is it that leads patients to develop hypoxemia during one lung ventilation? In short, it's ventilation perfusion mismatch, also referred to as VQ mismatch. And more specifically, shunt. All of that is to say you just started ventilating a single lung and have opened the non-ventilated lung to the air so it can collapse easily. Your ventilated lung is getting perfused with deoxygenated blood performing the appropriate exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide, then returning that blood to the left atrium. But you also have deoxygenated blood passing through the collapsed lung, not exchanging any oxygen or carbon dioxide, and then returning that blood to the left heart to mix with the newly oxygenated blood that came from the ventilated lung. Depending on the disease and baseline function of your ventilated lung, you may find yourself rapidly developing hypoxemia or you might not. So the amazing and fortunate thing about all of this is that there are a few naturally protective mechanisms at play here, all working to ours and the patient's benefit, some slowly and some more immediately. First, do you remember those talks way back when all about the zones of West? Well, they are awesome, and they really do help us here. The basic premise of West zones is that there is a vertical gradient of blood flow caused by gravity. So the lung parenchyma that's closer to the earth is going to selectively have increased blood flow with less ventilation, and the lung parenchyma farther from the earth will have more distended alveoli with reduced perfusion. When performing thoracic surgery and one lung ventilation, the patient is usually in the lateral decubitus position, and the ventilated lung is going to be the dependent lung, or the down lung, or simply the lung that is closest to the ground. This causes the dependent lung 
to receive approximately 60% of the blood that is pumped from the right heart, while only 40% of that discharged blood goes to the non-ventilated lung. This alone causes a significant decrease in shunt fraction. Not that this next component is modifiable, but just note that the right lateral decubitus position is more advantageous than the left because the heart takes up a significant amount of space in the left chest. So there's greater lung volume on the right side and there's more opportunity for air exchange and therefore less shunting when the left lung is up higher. One other protective mechanism that works to your advantage is hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. This is something that the body does selectively to decrease blood flow to alveoli with low oxygen tension and increase blood flow to well oxygenated alveoli. I'm going to refer to hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction as HPV going forward. HPV is able to reduce perfusion of one lung when it achieves its maximum vasoconstriction by up to 50%. Meaning due to that gradient I previously mentioned, the non-ventilated lung is receiving 40% of the right heart cardiac output initially. After HPV has fully developed, it can reduce that as low as 20% of the right heart's cardiac output. That's seriously amazing. The one catch about this is that HPV doesn't develop instantaneously. When I first learned about it, I remember thinking and imagining it as something that you could basically just switch on and off like a light switch. But it is definitely more complicated than that. HPV is biphasic. The first phase, or phase one, begins to develop almost immediately, but it doesn't plateau for about 15 minutes. Phase two begins after about 30 to 60 minutes of persistent hypoxia and doesn't achieve its maximum effect until approximately 120 minutes has passed. Yes, that's right. Two whole hours to achieve the maximum effect so that 50% reduction in cardiac output to the non-ventilated lung, you're not even going to really get that maximum benefit for two hours. In my experience, you're usually done using one lung ventilation before that point. Additionally, after you've resumed two lung ventilation, HPV doesn't return to its baseline right away. It can take 24 hours for things to return to normal. So while we've got a few things working to our benefit, it's not necessarily enough, and that is the reason for this podcast. Before I get into this, I just want to emphasize one thing. If you initiate one lung ventilation and the patient's oxygen saturation drops precipitously, you need to communicate clearly with the surgeon, return to two lung ventilation, and implement some of the steps that we're going to discuss before returning to one lung ventilation. All of this requires teamwork to ensure that our patient makes it safely through surgery and achieves the best possible outcome because that's what we're all there for in the first place. The approach to hypoxemia during one lung ventilation can be divided into modifiable factors in both the ventilated and the non-ventilated lung. These can be done in kind of a stepwise fashion, but it's important to realize that if your patient's saturation continues to drop, 
you may have to return to two lung ventilation, like I mentioned previously, for a short time, then implement one or more of these interventions prior to returning to one lung ventilation. You likely won't have time to trial all of these interventions in one go, so you might do this numerous times. Let's start with optimizing the ventilated lung. Prior to any indication that your patient is going to have issues, your best approach to managing hypoxemia is to prevent hypoxemia. That involves targeting an entitled CO2 of around 40 because significant acidosis, whether metabolic or respiratory, as well as hypocarbia can inhibit hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. You also want to target an appropriate airway pressure because the higher your pressures, the more you're going to shunt the blood to the non-ventilated lung. Too low of pressures will yield atelectasis and shunt in the ventilated lung. It's kind of a tough balance. You also want to avoid the use of vasodilators like nitroglycerin, unless you really need them, because those can prevent hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction as well. Your patient that you're caring for is being ventilated on one lung, and the oxygen saturation is dropping into the low 90s, showing no signs of slowing down. First thing I would do is I would increase the inspired oxygen concentration to 100% if I'm not there already. Next, I'm likely to ventilate manually to feel for changes in the compliance and try to recruit some atelectatic lung tissue in the ventilated lung and increase it the positive end expiratory pressure when returning to mechanical ventilation. All this while remembering that the more PEEP you apply to the ventilated lung, the more you will promote blood flow to the non-ventilated lung and potentially increase your shunt fraction. So that, again, there's a little bit of a balance here. I'd also consider reducing the dose of volatile anesthetic as that can impede HPV in a dose-dependent manner. The volatile anesthetics usually aren't going to have a significant effect at one MAC of anesthesia, it doesn't hurt to try this if you're really struggling. Okay, so you've now maximized your inspired oxygen concentration. You've recruited your ventilated lung, optimized your dose of volatile anesthetic while avoiding things that prevent the development of HPV. All these things, if they still aren't improving, you should consider checking the tube position. Make sure your balloon isn't occluding the upper lobe bronchus, for example, or ensure that you don't have a large mucus plug in the ventilated lung. At this point in our theoretical patient, let's say the oxygen saturation is now 86%. Seems to have kind of stabilized, but it's not rising. I feel we've done what we can to optimize the ventilated lung at this time, so it's time to switch over to the non-ventilated lung. Typically, I would start with the ventilated lung because interventions we perform on the non-ventilated lung have potential to affect the operative field and make the surgeon's job more challenging or even impossible depending on the operative site. It would behoove you to communicate openly with the surgeon about these interventions, and I can't state that enough. So my next step is probably going to be passive oxygenation of the collapsed lung using some sort of a soft suction catheter attached to my auxiliary oxygen flow. 
if the female-to-female -female oxygen tubing isn't immediately available to you, you can also use a salter nasal cannula. I like using this because one side of the tubing goes to the oxygen while the other side is for entitled CO2 monitoring. So if you just cut the tubing next to the nose piece and take the oxygen flowing tubing, you can just thread that down the endotracheal tube to the lung that's collapsed. If you do this, typically you want to run the flows at 4 to 6 liters per minute and the change is not going to be instantaneous, so you've got to be patient with it. Assuming this is still inadequate, the next option would be to apply CPAP to the non-ventilated lung. If the lung is already collapsed, you will likely need to start at 5 to 10 centimeters of water or even more due to the atelectasis. But if you're applying it immediately after recruiting and ventilating the operative lung, you may only require 1 to 2 centimeters of water of CPAP to keep a lot of alveoli open while optimizing the surgical field the best you can. There are numerous techniques and devices for applying CPAP to the collapsed lung, which are not easy to describe over an audio podcast, but the major components are similar across all of them. These include the use of fresh oxygen flow of 5 or more liters per minute via oxygen tubing, a CPAP valve that allows you to change the amount of continuous pressure in the system, and some sort of means of attaching it to the bronchial blocker or lumen of your double lumen tube that's going to the operative lung. So let's say we've tried all of these interventions and we are still unable to maintain adequate oxygen levels. You could discuss with the surgeon the possibility of temporarily clamping the pulmonary artery of the operative lung, effectively eliminating any shunt through that lung whatsoever, but this has to really be considered carefully. If the patient had any pre-existing pulmonary hypertension or right ventricular dysfunction, it could be catastrophic. Additionally, cutting off all blood flow to that lung, unless the operation is a total pneumonectomy, could have some pretty profound negative consequences due to ischemia to that lung. The last thing I think is worth discussing is inhaled vasodilators like nitric oxide and epoprostenol. The nice thing is that they will selectively go to the ventilated lung, increasing the blood flow to that lung and decreasing the shunt fraction. I've not actually ever had to get to this point personally, but it's good to know that this is an option and good to keep that in your back pocket. A couple things to consider if using these drugs. At least here at the University of Kentucky, they are not immediately available at the flip of a switch. If you need them, it will take time for them to be brought to the operating room and then added to the ventilator circuit. I know that the nitric oxide is dramatically more expensive than epoprostenol, but it does also have a faster onset of action. So these are all valuable techniques, but they're not all the most obvious or simple to implement. Admittedly, I have personally not had to use several of these techniques. I've done several shorter cases where we simply did intermittent one lung ventilation when the oxygen saturation drops to 86 to 87%. The surgeon stops. You go back up to two lungs for a few minutes on a 100% inspired oxygen concentration. When you feel you're ready, you go back to one lung ventilation and rinse and repeat for the duration of the procedure. This obviously is not ideal. It requires a cooperative surgeon and involves a lot of your personal attention. 
but it will get you through. Other times, we've simply continued with a low tidal volume ventilation while the surgeon pushed the lung out of the way. So as a brief recap, the approach to hypoxemia during one lung ventilation can be divided into optimization of the ventilated lung and the non-ventilated lung. The ventilated lung may require increasing the inspired oxygen concentration, optimizing PEEP to reduce atelectasis without shunting more blood to the non-ventilated lung, and potentially inhaled vasodilators. The non-ventilated lung may require some passive oxygenation, some PEEP, or rarely clamping of the pulmonary artery of the appropriate laterality. These can be among the most challenging cases to get through safely. Having a good open dialogue with the surgeon will allow you to do what is best for the patient and ultimately achieve the best possible outcome. I hope you find this podcast useful. I cannot guarantee that this podcast is comprehensive, but I hope it's been a good review and serves you well when you inevitably run into hypoxemia during one lung ventilation. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well, on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.